This is Jared Fishman, and you're listening to the 20-Sided Gamified Podcast. The past 20 years, I've blended games and education together in the classroom. I'm a history teacher, a game-based learning specialist, and I serve on the board of HMGS NextGen Inc. and the North American Simulations and Games Association. I'm looking to broaden my own knowledge of game-based learning by talking to the people that do it best. Pull up a chair, get your dice ready, and enjoy the ride. All right, everybody. Hello from my quiet little quarter of Connecticut. This is Jared Fishman. I think you already know me if you're listening to this podcast. So this is the 20-Sided Gamified podcast. Um, I'm super excited because not only do I have a guest today um, that's really amazing at what he does, but it's also somebody that I'm friends with and I've known for a little while. So the fact that I get to interview uh, Dr. Trent Hergenrader, who, by the way, this is the coolest name ever. That was literally the first thing that I thought of when when I saw Trent's name. Uh, he's a, a professor of, I believe, English and creative writing um, yep. at RIT in Rochester. So I'm going to kind of leave it at that because we'll start right now. <laughs> Hi, <Great>. Trent. <laughs> Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing really well, man. How is everything with you? Doing really well. Uh, it was rainy yesterday and very gray. Uh, today it's sunny and bright. So who doesn't like a bright, sunny spring day, right? No, for sure. I actually, um, to, just to get a little bit personal, so I feel exactly the same way you do, uh, same way as you do. Uh, looking outside, it's very bright out. However, yesterday was like the day of days, you know. So yeah. at my house, like the motor on the my little pool outside doesn't work anymore it poured all day had yeah. a little bit of water creeping into the house so as like a new homeowner it's like <laughs> i am very thankful for the sun today yes exactly so <laughs> all right so so trent this is very exciting um you know I, I can say that you certainly helped me um in terms of my own teaching and gamified learning so i guess for our listeners maybe we just sort of start like i don't know like origin story yeah almost sure. like you know in the star wars sense of things um so so where are you from uh so i grew up i was born in portland oregon but grew up mostly in green bay wisconsin and then went to the university of wisconsin at madison my parents moved when i was in my first year i found out where they moved uh it was california but uh i ended up <laughs> living in madison uh year round lived in chicago for a few years i was working for the united states soccer federation soccer is another one of my major passions Moved out to Washington State for a few years to work in their youth division because they've got a huge youth program out there. Um, and then I went to my 10-year high school reunion and people were asking me if I was still writing fiction. And I said no. Uh, and I was amazed how many people from my high school 10 years later remembered. And I thought I should really give this a try. Mm -hmm. So uh, we moved back uh, to Wisconsin, moved back to Madison. Uh, and I started going to graduate school at the University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee. Um mm -hmm. And that's where, you know, so that, that's the that's the adult sort of version, you know, and as a kid, I was I was really a big reader, loved science fiction and fantasy, loved role playing games. You know, that was a kid in the, the late 70s and early 80s. So played lots of role playing games, lots of different forms of media, loved movies, comics. Right. People weren't really talking about that stuff back then. You know, it was just something that it was naturally what I was into. Um, and then when I was in graduate school, I started in 2006 and then, you know, the market completely collapsed for academic jobs in 2008 after right. the um, collapse, economic collapse. And uh, I was su I was super nervous about going back to graduate school to begin with because I didn't think I was ever going to find a job. Um, so I started to specialize in writing. So I was doing creative writing uh, as my specialization for my, my English PhD. 
Um, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to be a writing specialist. I'll do a little professional writing, little rhetoric and composition, and then focus on creative writing. Uh, and at that time, there wasn't a whole lot of creative writing uh, pedagogy uh, material out there. There just there was some, um, and it was starting to grow, but it, there wasn't a whole lot. And I was focusing on digital tools, social media, collaborative writing, using all these different digital digital and collaborative atmospheres uh, to enhance student sort of understanding of writing. And there was almost nothing in creative writing in this. There was a little bit on like digital, like uh, electronic literature organization. They they had some things about interactive storytelling and things like that. Uh, and that's where one of my advisors said, you know, you should be looking at games. So I was really interested in um, role-playing games to begin with. I hadn't played much except for the FIFA series, which I was completely addicted to, and like <laughs> Grand, Grand Theft Auto. Sure. When I started getting into the games, like I played Fallout 3, and I was like, man, this would be an awesome way to teach creative writing, right? Like you get to build a character, you customize them. Uh, and this was really the first, I'll talk about this in just a second. This was the first class that I that I taught and really had to sort of fight tooth and nail to, to get this class. But as I started getting into the the gaming literature and the games and literature or games and learning uh, literature and how you you take whatever course uh, outcomes and learning outcomes that you want and you find games that have rules that that align well with those. Uh, and I thought, OK, well, this would be great. Right. I want to build a build a class around role playing and finally fought tooth and nail to get it in 2011. That's where I was. I was mentioning before I was just at this uh, this conference last week. And this one faculty member said, you know, oh, I've been doing games for a while, three or four years. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I'm on year 12. You know? uh, yeah, so you are the like OG. <laughs> I've, I've been doing it for quite some time. Right. Um, but uh, but in this class in, in the spring semester of uh, 2011 at, at UW-Milwaukee, uh, I got I, I happened to harass the, the graduate um, sort of uh, advisor enough to give me this experimental class. And I'm like, okay, well, what we're going to do is we're going to use Vampire the Masquerade as the as the base system, but it's going to be a post-apocalyptic version of Milwaukee. So we'll play some Fallout. We'll you know talk about the the genre, uh, do a little world building, and then we'll use the last third of the class or whatever to do some do some role playing. And it's one of those things where, in hindsight, it was like the best class, like just that perfect chemistry between the students. And I'm like, oh, I figured it out, right? It's like, mm -hmm. you know, subsequent subsequent times, it's never it's never quite gone as good. And I think it was also because it was the first time. But um, you know, so we got into the role playing uh, with the video games first. And what I was really interested in, the, the, their first assignment was they needed to go out and fall out and find 10 new loca locations, right? And write a little bit about the characters that they made. And out of those 25 students, I think it was, nobody's character was even remotely similar. Like it was, as, it was mm -hmm. as, as diverse as you could possibly imagine. And they also went to completely different areas of the map. And I thought, okay, I played Fallout 3 a bunch. And I'm like, everyone just goes to Megaton the first time, right? Mm -hmm. And it turns out they didn't, like a lot of them didn't do that. A lot of them did, but then, you know, uh, so it was really, really fascinating. And I started thinking, wow, there's a lot of opportunity uh, here. So we did the world building next where they sort of built, we used a, a Google map, map of Milwaukee and created sort of people and places and whatever. And I said, okay, create 10 entries or whatever it was um, and mark them on the map. And then we were doing the role playing. And the things that I got really interested in at that time, um, which has sort of been the tra trajectory of my entire career, was number one, there were a lot of assumptions about the way that the world worked this post-apocalyptic world that we didn't talk much about it. We're just like, it's post-apocalyptic Milwaukee and just lots of uh, assumptions about race and gender and, you know, other, other kinds of things. I'm like, wow, there's a disparate version of like what this world looks like and the rules of this world. And then when we got into the role-playing, it was fantastic. You know what I mean? Surprise, surprise. 
Um, we're doing these different sessions and, you know, rolling the dice and students standing up and cheering, you know, and right. like all that kind of stuff. So it was really sort of a magical thing. And I'm like, okay, well, this is what I want to, this is what I want to do now is this as much as possible. Um, and more or less for the last, like I've said, for the last 12 years, I've just been refining sort of this combination. The classes that I teach on heavy rotation are one class is just called the world building workshop. Uh, and then the other one is game-based fiction, in which I take different role-playing games. Sometimes we do a little world-building. Sometimes we just dive right in. We've done a Star Wars uh, one. We've done a Game of Thrones one where, you know, the ideas are you can enter a world that everybody already knows the rules and start to focus. Or we can take a world and customize it for the first third of the class or whatever and then do the role-playing um, and I mean, these are things where you know, I'll, I'll stop rambling at this point, but this is the thing where over, over this number of years, the thing that's really difficult with teaching, uh, role-playing games or using role-playing games in the class is that institutional spaces and time blocks are, do not lend themselves well oh, to it. Uh, right. understatement of the century, <laughs> understatement of the century. And you can't really, as one instructor, you can't, you know, be the game master for four or five different groups. Uh, in any kind of traditional sense, right? You don't have 40 hours in a week. I've got other things I need to do, you know what I mean? Both in work and in my family or whatever. So, so those are some of the things where I'm still trying to uh, crack that nut to figure out uh, what are some of the best ways um, to do it because there's also all the other learning outcomes. So this past semester, um, we just did very shortened, like we had five groups, each had 20 minutes. So it was very truncated like you know you're mm -hmm. going to fill out the details we're just going to go through make sure everyone has a couple decisions to make and make a couple roles but then we had almost no time in class to go over like the mechanics of fiction writing and things like that right so it's always sort of a balance the best scenario i've had is when i had a student who is in the game design program rit where i teach has an excellent game design program very highly rated uh, and i had a student who wanted to go on to graduate school and he was very into role-playing games so he would set up research studies um, and would do the, the role playing outside of class. And that was excellent because they would get a good two hour, three hour session in. every group would get that in every other week or so. Um, he was getting something out of it because he was, you know, doing his research and then that left me time. Uh, but that's not something that I can, you know, say, Hey, everyone needs to go, you know, every teacher should go do this, right? <laughs> like right. find a really talented GM who is interested in doing his own research or her own research and let them run that side of the class for you. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is something too, I'll, I'll let you ask questions here, but the, the uh, <laughs> sort of the evolution and, and the growth of the, the single player role playing game, you know, there's all of these solo sort of modules that you can add on. I'm, I'm going to be experimenting with that in the future to see if we can um, have students at their, you know, rolling up random encounters and things like that, mm -hmm. and then coming back uh, with their sort of reflections and reactions to that. So I've got high hopes that some of those mechanics may may be able to be applied uh, to to the kind of things that I teach, and maybe things that other people teach as well. Right. By the way, that wasn't rambling at all. I often <laughs> say to guests that, um, you know, rambling is just not something that I even think about in in doing this podcast, just because, again, you know, how many other places could somebody that's interested in teaching and interested in games kind of hear about this sure. sort of stuff? Sure. However, I will say, though, that I can already tell that you're going to have to come back at some point because just <laughs> in that one in your bio, there's so much that we can sort of talk about. So sure. Sure. I'm sort of making mental notes here. So in everything that you said, let's back up to what was the first role playing game that really jumped out at you? So you're a kid. You said you were growing up in the late 70s, early 80s. I mean, what jumped out jumped out at you? Why did it? And where does that sort of begin? 
Yeah, it starts with D&D. Um, so we, uh, you know, being from Green Bay and the fact that uh, Lake Geneva is the the place where D&D uh, originated, it, it was always sort of in the air, I think, in in that area of Wisconsin. I mean, it's still a few hours away, but still. We had a little game shop, and I remember it very well, you know, dusty, uh, kind of dark, and you'd go in. Um, <laughs> in my history, it's funny because I've got two older brothers who are twins, um, and you know, we got D and D right away, but then I'm really interested in sort of the, the history of, uh, early role-playing games as well. And we were pretty committed to TSR, but we bought all the early ones, Boot Hill, Star Frontiers, Gamma World, um, the Marvel superheroes one was probably the one I played more than any, any other. Um, and I didn't really know what we were was doing at that point. You know what I mean? There was mm-hmm. very much like your, your brother would GM and kill your characters right away, you know, whatever. <laughs> and then also as they got a little bit older, uh, and I've noticed this with my own kids, just sort of like the cognitive development, you're not ready to participate in like a coherent narrative when you're eight or nine years old, really. Right. I mean, like you want to do mm-hmm. the fun stuff or whatever. So they were in their teen, they're, they're three years older than me. Um, so I spent a lot of time just rolling up characters, right? Just randomly generating a character and then doing some random encounters. And I mean, here I am, I'm, I'm going to be 50 in January and I'm still doing the same damn thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, um, it's just one of those things that I think what always has attracted to me. And this is where too, it's funny when you look at the, the, uh, sort of educational research around this stuff, uh, you know, the guys from D and D didn't really do this on purpose or, or intend to do it. But you give a structure with rules that say, okay, you can do this and you can't do that. But within the space of these rules, you can do literally anything that you want. Right? Yeah, it's so exciting. Um, yeah, exactly. So it's it's really great because there are constraints. So this is some of the stuff on the writing side as well. I've gotten into a lot of interesting uh, artistic movements, over the, particularly over the 20th century, that are all about restraints and restrictions. So, you know, writing, I've got an assignment where I have my students write uh, tweets, but they can only use one vowel. Like for Mm -hmm. every word, they can only use the vowel I, right? So it really makes you think, okay, how does language work? You know, and then you start to learn about rhythm and things like that. So there's that sense that working within constraints rather than having complete freedom um, is very productive and it generates things. And this is where too, like I was very surprised, like as as a kid growing up, I was always a writer um, even though I enjoyed all these different forms of media, I was always just sort of like a fiction writer. Um, I never had a problem coming up with ideas. Uh, and that's where I've found that a lot of students do have problems coming up with ideas. Uh, or the other problem is they just want to tell a story that they've already seen 10,000 times. Sure. You know what I mean? Well, I do. Cause it's, it's hard to come up with an original idea, even for myself. And I'm sure you've run into this too. I mean, I've run literally thousands of, of, of individual, you know, uh, role-playing campaigns or role-playing, you know, game nights or whatever. Um, and yeah, like I find sometimes I plagiarize myself, I plagiarize others. It's, it's not, it's definitely not easy. So I think in terms of teaching, especially if you have kids coming into your classroom at RIT, and I know that I sometimes do in my own job, um, it's almost like teaching kids, like teaching them little tools to learn how to be creative. You know, I I think because sometimes, and I, again, I, I don't know what your experience is, but like, Specifically, when it comes to history, right? Teaching history, having nothing to do with games. I mean, it can be really hard when a kid comes up to you and was like, I don't know what to write as a thesis. And I have to be like, well, I don't know either. I mean, I can give you ideas, but so it's definitely a a tricky thing. But ultimately, I do think RPGs especially can be a great tool for kids to like learn how to how to do some of these things. Yeah, absolutely. And that's I'm working on a book that should be out. I just I signed the contract right before COVID hit, which I Mm -hmm. would recommend to all 
all of your listeners never do that. Um, <laughs> right. And I think we're on a, we're on our second extension. I'm co uh, co writing it with my uh, friend Dr. Stephen Sloda from uh, University of Connecticut, who's an Ed Psych. Uh, PhD, but uh, it's about using world building. Um, the the, t- the tentative title is the world building workshop, teaching critical thinking through uh, world modeling, simulation, and play. And the mm-hmm. idea is basically, and this is where the the research that I'm doing now and the work that I'm doing now, and I, I bring this into my fiction writing classes, and I'm I'm interested in applying it to other areas. And, and I'm working with a bunch of different professors across the country that are in different disciplines. But basically, this I that that going back to that very first time. How do we how do we talk about a world? Uh, how do we sort of articulate the social forces at play? Um, you know, because we know that that the world of the Northeast is very different and of the United States is very different than the Southeast and different than the Southwest, different demographics, different cultures, different all those kind of things. And then you can start moving around. You know what I mean? The you know, the world, you can move in time. So one of the classes that I've taught before is called Steampunk Rochester, where we model Rochester in 1920 when mm-hmm. there was the women's suffrage movement going on and lots of labor issues going on and lots of immigrants coming in. And it's a very different world than the one that we live in today. But right. you can look back and I mean, there are traces of that world that are still with us today. Right. And you could also project into the future. What's Rochester in 2120 going to be looking like? Right. Right. So just thinking about that. And then the key being that the next. So that's fine to talk about the world and the different social forces at play and, you know, the government and the economics and the social relations, cultural influences, all that kind of stuff that shift and change over time. But the thing that's really powerful then is thinking about the demographics of who is living in that world at any of those times and saying, can you put yourself in the head of a character that you haven't created that maybe the student next to you created, right? What would it be like to, to be this person, to be, uh, you know, a woman who wants to be an engineer in 1920s Rochester, right? She would have had a lot of things that were working against her in that just right. because of the, just because of the time frame, right? So that's where building in uh, that's the critical thinking part is thinking about okay, well, who can you think about in this world who has advantages or disadvantages? And this is where it gets away from like the overly politically correct uh, sort of aspect either, and just say, hey, look, the world is not equal for everyone just based on who they are and what they want and then start thinking about well worlds do change over time and over place and how does that happen right what are the mechanisms by which women went from not being able to vote in 1920 or 1919 to being able to vote in 1920 and then now we are 100 years later what are the other things that we've uh you know improved on or or had more levels of equality and how do those things happen how do we make those changes in the world so even though there's always, and it doesn't matter whether you're talking about, you know, asteroids with space squids and whatever, it always comes back to that same question. What are the social forces at play? Who are the advantaged ones? Who are the disadvantaged ones? And, you know, what what would you want to see changed in this world? Um, and that's where the the world building card deck that I that I've created that goes along with I should plug my book, Collaborative World Building for Writers and Gamers is my book that talks about this. And there's a world building card deck that you can either use to model fiction worlds, either real worlds or fictional worlds, or the you know, the most fun thing is to scramble up all of the different values for these different social forces, deal them out randomly, and then say, okay, well, how did this world come to be? And then start to think that same question. You build people, places, and things. And then like, well, what would be the things in a world? You know, it's like if the religion or the military is really high, we would expect to see lots of things in the physical world. 
Uh, you know, you'd see churches and temples and altars. If it was really religious, you'd see probably military outposts, training centers, right? If those were values that were really, really high. And then start thinking about, okay, well, what happens in that world if you're the if the super religious world and you're the atheist or a super atheistic world and you're the you're the one who's very pious, right? Like mm-hmm. these are all sort of the interesting questions. And then you can start looking around with a little bit more of a critical eye at our world and and I think apply those same kind of concepts. <clears throat> Who has uh, who has a lot of advantages, who has disadvantages, who's on the outside looking in, right? Um, and what do we want to what do we want to do about that? Right. I mean, that's, right. that's sort of the big question. There's a lot of complexity there. And what I was thinking about when you were kind of kind of describing um, you know, where you see sort of the value of almost like taking yourself out of out of out of your own shoes and put yourself into, you know, Rochester in the 1920s. How do students react to that kind of activity? Because what I have found, and it happens to kids, you know, that are on the right, kids on the left, where a lot of people are always these days very concerned about how they come off, whether that they're whether they're saying the right things, yeah. you know. Uh, so, what what has been your experience in terms of working with kids in this sort of modern world when it comes to tension like that? Yeah, and it's it's one of the things too that when I teach the world building workshop, where we so the, these two classes that I've talked about, the world building workshop and then the the role playing game, I always talk about them as two sides of the same coin, which the world building workshop is. You collaboratively with a group. I always do group work. Um, you collaboratively build a world. In this class, we do a fantasy world in the first half and a science fiction world in the second half. And we'll talk about those genres and what they mean and what that you know allows you to do or doesn't allow you to do or whatever. And then they have to create a bunch of different characters. And then I randomly assign them a couple characters, a couple locations, and a couple items or themes or something like that. And say, now you got to write me a, a story about how these people met, right? You know what I mean? Or why mm-hmm. would they be in this space or whatever? Um, so it's very much about thinking through the diversity and the demographics and what would bring two people from very different worldviews together in the same space uh, and write a very short sort of scene-based kind of fiction for that. In the role-playing game class, it's much more about, okay, we've got a world that we're all going to be playing in and you've got this character and we're going to follow this character for a series of sessions in which we're going to see how do they change and grow? How do they have obstacles? And again, it, it reinforces that idea that everybody in the room has different, has a different character. So they necessarily face different obstacles and they have different motivations and all of those kind of things. So, um, so it, it, it works a little bit differently in each of the classes. Uh, in the, in the world building workshop, they often want to come in and work on a world that they've been working on since they were 14. Mm-hmm. And I say, you don't get to do that. Uh, they want to, a lot of times they're expecting to work on their own worlds. And there are other instructors who, uh, teach the class as well. And they do, uh, just individual world building, but all my stuff is, is collaborative. And I, I do it that way because again, my, my motivation is, yeah, sure. They want to make a, a cool fictional world that they can go on to use in, you know, maybe a senior thesis, or if they're just, you know, enthusiasts for playing role-playing games or whatever, given the tools to be able to do this on their own when they go out. But really what I want to do is put all their imaginations on uh, collision courses, right? Mm-hmm. And this is where, too, really encouraging them to uh, talk about the media that they enjoy, right? So, oh, it's going to be sort of post-apocalyptic. Well, is it going to be more like fall- Fallout or Dishonored? You know what I mean? And like my my friend Steve Yukon uh, has had them do mood boards, which I've started doing. So like they're they're building a mood board of images that kind of represent their world, and that's all really really useful. I think the thing that uh, there's some there's definitely some hesitancy and some some trepidation, but uh, I try to provide structures that say, hey, look, these are all really low stakes. It's about the process, not the end product. 
and generally, it, once, the, once the snowball starts rolling down the hill, it picks up a lot of steam. But uh, in the same thing in the role-playing game classes, a lot of times, so the name of the class is game-based fiction, and virtually nobody knows. Either they know exactly what they're getting into or they have no idea what they're getting into. Uh, and I always say it doesn't matter if you've got role-playing game experience or not. Um, it's just, you know, come in, do the thing. It's about process over product. When it comes to assessment, it's a lot of counting for me. Like, you know, if I tell you to do 10 entries uh, and do the bare minimum, right, like write 250 words for an entry for people, places and things, it's not really about whether that was a great entry or not. I can scan through it. Did you do it? Did you not do it? Right. Um, you know, and is it did you put forth any effort? And if so, then you get full credit for right. all of that stuff. Right. The power of the completion grade. <laughs> yeah, the power of the completion grade. Right. And then I do. Yeah. So with a lot of the stuff, too, this is where I was talking about at this workshop that I was helping uh, facilitate at uh, RPI last week is that the assessment for me really comes in with the critical reflection that I asked them to reflect on what did you learn over the course of this semester? And what I found is that students nail that, right? Like if I ask them a question, then they're starting to fish around, no, no pun intended, fish around mm -hmm. for uh, what answer they think I might want. Where if I ask them, what did you learn? It allows them to, to explain to me how they're able to uh, put put the pieces together, you know, how they put the pieces together over the class. And this is one of the things that I think is really magical about uh, games and learning as well with that kind of expectation on my side that it's not going to be heavy assessment. It's not going to be, you know, you didn't get it or you got a B or whatever it is, right? Because one of the things I remember reading another study too that's saying, does it really matter if in week seven they don't, they didn't understand this concept if they mm -hmm. understand it in week nine? But they bomb the test in week seven, so then they feel like they, they're no good and whatever. Where if you just let that whole process, and it's like, oh, wait a minute, at the very end, at week 15, now I understand how it all goes together. And what I generally find is that the students who don't do the work can't do can't put the puzzle together at the end, right? And it's very clear because they're, uh, you know, it's one of those things, I want everyone to succeed, I want everyone to have learned a lot. Um, and sometimes just because of the nature of their majors and things like that, they didn't, they couldn't put in as much time as as they wanted and things like that. But for the most part, you can't fake what you've learned, right? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's one of those things, it's it, it, it just very superficial, very vanilla and bland and whatever. Um, and that is very, very rare to get much more often I get a uh, deep thinking about the moments that were light bulb moments where something connected for them to put these things together, seeing the bigger picture. Um, it's funny too, I was, I was talking with another colleague about how I always have to laugh in these, uh, in, in these final sort of essays in which it's like, you know, the class was really all over the place and messy, but I was able to come away <laughs> with it. It's like, okay, well, look, that just going to throw it out there. That may have been the design. You know what I mean? Like I was maybe <laughs> setting you up to do that, but right. like, congratulations. The most important thing is not that I get credit. It's that they, that they actually learned. Um, and I think that this past, so that's, that's historically uh, how it's gone. Uh, I change, I tinker a lot with uh, just the different elements of the classes, but more or less, I've got a pretty solid core um, that make these you know, pretty good engine to each of these that make them run. Uh, and I teach the same classes over and over again, and they're just endlessly interesting to me because you always yeah. got new students. They've always got different ideas. You know, they're working on different projects. So it's the same class, but it is not like lecturing over and over and over again. Um, and one of the things we were talking before uh, we started recording, too, is just the days of COVID. Uh, and it's been this past year was a little bit rockier uh, in a couple different ways. The world building class requires constant communication constant keeping tabs with people outside of uh, class as well. So, you know, set up discords or slacks or whatever, so they can do that. 
Um, and I think that there was just a real hesitancy amongst the students to like dig in and come up with ideas and suggest things. It was by far the quietest class I've ever had. And it was really normally it, it's like I got to tell people, OK, you've talked a lot. You know what I mean? Let let mm-hmm. other people talk or whatever. And this was much harder just to get people going and uh, just sort of like it was an inconvenience, right, for this right. to be ill-defined, right? Uh, this ill-defined kind of project where they need to start it from the ground up. It's like, oh, can't we just do some worksheets or can't we just, you know, do some quizzes or something like that? Uh, and then the same thing this past, so that was in the fall semester, which was the roughest, uh, roughest one. And the interesting thing is uh, I adapted it for online teaching for COVID and it worked great. We did synchronous online where each group would break out into different, you know, online rooms and I would move between the rooms and it worked out really, really well. So I was mm-hmm. surprised that it did not, that it was, it was a lot harder to get them going uh, this past fall. And then the past spring, this past spring semester, the one that I just finished, um, just, I, I, it was a weird mix. Like I'd said, that very first one that I taught at UW Milwaukee had the brilliant chemistry where everybody got along and, mm-hmm. you know, people became lifelong friends and we still keep in touch on Facebook. And there was just a different chemistry with this group and a lot of hesitancy. Um, and I tried something new where we were using the, uh, free leagues, um, uh, mutant year zero engine games or, um, the, uh, forged uh, the apocalypse world engines, right? So they had to choose either that and they were all in different genres. And I realize now in hindsight, that was a mistake. Having everyone play in the same world creates a lot of connective tissue. Mm -hmm. So I think the fact that each of them were trying to develop their own little pocket world. So we had one group playing Vazen, which is a huge game that I absolutely adore. Another group playing Mutant Year Zero, two groups playing Blades in the Dark. Uh, and the other group was playing uh, Tales from the Loop, which is like a Stranger Things kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I think that that's, I would not do that again, where I thought, okay, well, we'll be able to see how these different genres mix, you know, and all those kind of things. I think it perhaps could have worked had we had maybe twice as much time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, no, for uh, sure. But because I was trying to say, okay, well, look how these engines that can be, you know, skinned and, and applied to all these different genres. Wouldn't that be fun to see how the same engine can come up with completely different stories? And there just wasn't enough time. So I don't think I would I would do that again, or at least I would do it in a very different fashion. But trying to get them going, um, and as we talked about before we got on the, the recording, too, there were some different neurodivergent students in the class, too, who I think were outwardly, uh, you know, being socially different, so a little mm-hmm. bit off, right? You know, and trying to figure out how to negotiate that. Um, some people who are asking very sort of like pointed suspicion, uh, suspicious, suspicious, you know, how is this going to work with the kind of intent that it's not going to work and doing that very early and often. And I think it sort of planted a seed of doubt in mm-hmm. a lot of the students' heads. And then by the time we got to the role playing, it like two sessions in, everybody was like, can't wait to come to class, right? So what we were doing is, uh, there were five groups. I would break them up into groups of four or five, and I would do like the Tales from the Loop group followed by the Vazen group, 20 minutes, uh, sort of hard stop. And then everybody else in the class uh, was watching and taking notes. So we had a group that was doing a notes on the plot development, on character development, just sort of like out of game, what was happening, who was there, whatever. Um, and that I thought that model worked really, really well. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, it's one of those things that every time I'm experimenting with these classes, there's things that are going to work and there's things that aren't going to work. And that's what, what I always tell my students too, is look, I'm going to be generous with you to experiment and try things and then reflect on what worked and what didn't work and being honest about that at the end of the semester, because I'm doing the same thing, right? right. Like I'm be- trying to be honest. And like, if you thought it sucked, you can tell me that, right. Or like the parts <laughs> that were the best part. 
Because when I do it again, I'm going to tinker again and I'll try and, you know, try and do a better job. But I think that that's where, for me at least, um, it's going to be interesting in these in these coming years to see students' attitudes towards uh, education um, and how much they're going to resist or embrace a radically different thing than the lecture, the worksheet, you know, all those other other kinds of things. There was also some some things too where I've got them outside of class breaking down stories. The, this the focus of this past role playing game class was how to develop a scene. So what I was trying to model for them was every time that we went in and played a session, there was a specific problem at the heart of that session that they would need to somehow either advance or resolve or whatever it is because that's the way we write fiction, right? Every scene has to, you know, present new problems that are going to ratchet up the tension. So I had them breaking down some short stories uh, and doing some readings and then applying the readings to the short stories that we didn't talk about in class because we just didn't have enough time. Uh, And a few students, probably like four or five out of 20, were like, well, that was a complete waste of time. But then on the other hand, another three or four were like, that was so useful uh, mm-hmm. because it, it it made me do this on my own, right? To think about this. And this is the whole point is like, if we're just having fun in the class and then once the class is over, you know, maybe you go play role-playing games or whatever. I haven't done my job as a teacher because it's about learning about storytelling, about character development, about right. all these other things. So they need at the end to be able to tell me what they learned, right? And I do an oral exam where they write a short story and then they come in and talk to me. It, it takes a lot of time at the end of the semester. But, you know, we talk for 15 minutes just about that story, what they think was working, what they thought could use some work and what they learned over the course of the semester. Um, and they're really awkward if the students aren't well prepared to have thought right. about that. Um, and they're very rarely awkward. They're usually really, really good. And they're the, the highlight of the semester. But, um, right. you know, so th- those are some of the questions that I sort of have to uh, the one with the more transactional nature of a lot of these classes, class right. sizes going up, you know, and like all like, how am I going to I couldn't teach this class to 50 or 100 students. It just right. it's almost scale. impossible. It yeah. doesn't scale up that way. Well, do you think that I mean, I have a couple of thoughts on this, right? So um, here's my first thought. So look, I mean, there are certainly students who I would imagine um, would have a lot of difficulty with some of this because ultimately it's like, if you're the kind of student that is really primarily concerned about a grade, sometimes kids love to regurgitate. So the yeah. problem is, is you know, there's not necessarily, when they're crafting their character and having to think about this world, there's not necessarily like a page of reading that they can do, that they can memorize. Yeah. You know, so it's almost like, I guess, double the work because if you're not putting the time into developing your character or thinking about the world, well, how can you possibly reflect on it? Yeah. So I would imagine that's probably really challenging for some. But um, I have, here's a question for you. I mean, sure. Where do you think this is coming from? Like, do you think that this year was more of an aberration or do you think that it's more of a reflection on our society and maybe um, the way that kids are maybe looking at education these days? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm hoping that it's an aberration. I'm hoping that it's going to be a, a, a one and, you know, maybe a couple years that we're going to have to cycle through whatever years that students were uh, during the COVID years, you know, and online. And I don't think anybody nailed that year right i mean and this is mm-hmm. where like so i've got i've got a 14 year old and an 11 year old um and you could just see so my my 14 year old was in middle school uh when this hit and he had you know seven or eight different teachers whatever it is across all these different subjects and there was one who taught both his english and his social studies who uh specialized in digital media and online teaching and things like that and it, you could tell he was totally engaged. They were learning mm-hmm. about, you know, ancient cultures and all these kind of you know, super involved. But then there were the other ones that were like, I'm going to give you math worksheets that you're going to need to upload, you know, whatever. Right. Um, 
So it, it, I think it, your uh, mileage will vary based on the kind of teachers that you had and their preparation. And very few teachers, I think, were well prepared, especially if they were a little bit on the older side. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of people retired after those COVID oh, years. Definitely. It's like it's just uh, not not worth it anymore. Um, but I think the thing that the thing that I'm concerned about uh, as a committed sort of leftist uh, is this sort of transactional nature that we're seeming to be speeding towards. Uh, that um, everything needs to be efficient, everything needs to be neat, everything needs to be scaled up with no jagged edges on anything, right? We just all need to conform so we can get these students through as efficiently as possible, right? Um, and that's where I am completely uh, against that in every mm-hmm. in every uh, fashion. And this is where, too, I know enough sort of ed psych and, and I've got friends who are education PhDs that, uh, you know, sort of rail their heads against the wall because they know this whole system is stupid and it mm-hmm. doesn't work very well. Right. Like what te- what students by and large are showing is whether they know how to take a test or not. Right. Uh, you know, and the idea that we bring them all in based on age right, and then they stay with that cohort as they move up rather than through their developmental, you know, abilities, like, you know, so what if a third grader is doing math with first graders, if that's what they need, that's what they need, right? Sure. You know, and like, it's almost no, like the Montessori style of education. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's, and then that's where when you get into the constructionist and constructivist uh, sort of learning theories, it's all the Montessori stuff, right? And it's all about building and being active and not didactic and being lectured to, you know, and all those kind of things. But our system is, it seems not only to not have been built that way, because granted, you know, when public education started, it's like no one really knew anything about education, you know, how people Mm -hmm. learn or whatever. But these systems are so entrenched now. And the worrying thing is that it seems like politically the answer is to double down on the standardized testings and large class sizes and driving, driving. uh, We've got a lot of neighbors who are are middle school, uh, grade school teachers and and the things that are required of them now are mm-hmm. absolutely insane and they're not yeah. making a ton of money for this right so it's like most of them are looking towards their retirement right and my my friends who are in education you know the students are quite quite rightly asking like the numbers are going down of the people who want to be teachers and that's what i i worry about that it's going to we're going to find ourselves in a situation in which uh it just goes completely transactional right and the yeah. the kind of ways that i teach and that i know work will not be will not look good on an excel spreadsheet when the budget people come to look right it's like well why is this professor only teaching x number of students um when he could be teaching you know 300 times that amount if he would just use the learning management system and create some canned lectures and whatever and it's like so that's that's the big thing that I'm that I'm worried about. The other thing too, it, with the stuff on the digital side, you know, everything with AI and Chat GPT coming, uh, there are parts of that that I'm excited about um, that I think mm-hmm. could really be useful, uh, and it could be a really useful tool. But I, I'm way way more worried because I think uh, people are going to see it as a, as a way. Well, now professors and teachers can design their entire curriculums using chat GPT and create essays. And then the students will use chat GPT to answer those essays, right? Where it's right. completely hoop jumping transactional rather than like critically thinking through what yeah. is it that we're actually trying to do. Yeah. We've done some, we've done a little bit at my school. Um, uh, not, I wouldn't call them studies per se, but I mean, we've talked about chat GPT quite a bit and we've experimented a a bit with it. And I don't know, I I don't know what your experience has been with it so far. I mean, look, if I'm being as fair as I can, at least from the perspective of a classroom teacher, I mean, there is something really cool about the fact that let's say, let's say here. So 
we're doing World War II in my modern world history class, right? There is something to be said, for example, if a student um, is creating an outline um, about the major concepts they learned about in class, let's say they're preparing for a final, and then maybe using ChatGPT to create a similar outline and maybe mm -hmm. compare and contrast, you know, there's certain to be cer certainly something to be said about that. Um, but I think the problem for a lot of students is, even if they're very sly about it, the problem is the critical thinking component. Yeah, I mean, exactly. and the other problem is the fact that there may have been some things that AI might stress because AI is essentially just pulling all the facts off the internet, right? Yeah. That maybe never came up in class. So if you're a particularly weak student, my fear is it's going to make your life even more challenging because not only are you not yeah. remembering what went on in class, now you've got, you know, the god of all machines, you know, um, yeah. essentially confusing you even more, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, we've we've talked quite a bit about that. But the other kind of side of that is none of us are pretending that we can control it. Yeah, exactly. we really can. Exactly. I mean, we have firewalls, at school and things like that. But ultimately, when the kids go home, they can kind of do whatever they want. Yeah. My fear, too, is if you're a teacher and maybe I'm patting myself too much on the back or maybe I'm thinking too much about my own ability here. But I like to think that I know the voices of a lot of my students because yeah. of the amount of writing that we do. Yep. And the second that you're using AI, you know, to generate an essay, it's not really their voice. But the thing is, not everybody has the kids write all the time and not everybody does a diagnostic or a one-on-one -on -one yep. with a kid. So I don't know. It is definitely scary though. I remember taking... um. Now I feel like I'm rambling, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I, I took a class on history of the future back like 20 years ago when I was in college. And it was essentially like about everything that's happening right now. Yeah, it's like, yeah. oh my God, back in the day, I was like, oh, this is ridiculous. You know, right, right. watching Terminator 2 almost as if it was fact. And we made fun of this professor so much. And now yeah. it's like, oh my God, like we right. are inches Apology away letter, from yeah. having robots like walking around our houses like our aides, you know? Yep, yep. So yeah, um, no, that's, it's crazy. It's scary. Yeah. Uh, on the on the positive, because I think you're absolutely right. Like one of the things that uh, in fiction writing that a lot of time, like I, I say, you know, it's a really easy thing. And there's this old and very stupid question as to whether creative writing can be taught. And the answer is, of course, it can be taught. Right now, the question is, can we turn every student into a published writer? That's a different question. Right. But we can definitely take where they're at and teach them some things that that improve writing, right? So um, passive voice, you know, using lots of was, is, were. Mm -hmm. Generally, you know, I, I teach students, hunt those down and eliminate them, uh, replace them with more active verbs. And that's something sure. that, you know, it gets away from all of these things too, with, it, you know, the cultural construction of what is good writing or whatever. It's like, look, you know, yeah, it's hard for you to make an argument that that's like a cultural thing. You know what I mean? It's like just active mm -hmm. verbs just, just tend to be, tend to be better and more engaging. And that's something that you can run through chat GPT, right? And get some suggestions. And I think that that's where you could compare, you know, what, what it is. Like I, I'm writing this manuscript now and I ran a couple, I was like, felt like I was all over the place, just rambling, right? And plugged it into chat GPT and said, you know, revise this for clarity and whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and it did a pretty good job, right? And it's one of those yeah. things where it's like, ah, this was able to sort of like highlight the stuff. But then of course I had to go back in and edit it and revise it which is not right. something that I, I would imagine a majority of eighth graders are, are going to do for their essays, right? right? But I think using it in that way, and then the thing that I'm getting you know, super excited about, thinking about um, the role-playing games, NPCs, things like that, there seems to be a real opportunity here to have much more authentic dialogue with fictional characters and mm -hmm. let the conversations go in different ways. Um, I have no idea how that would be programmed or sculpted, but I've got some friends in my, I'm very good friends with the, the professors over in the game design program 
Right. Um, and those are the things that they're investigating right now, right? So thinking about how could you make a solo uh, role-playing game that is better than just sort of like random, ran- rolling random encounters, right? Like right, right. The encounters are reacting to you and responding to you in ways that will be different based on, you know, your character and everybody else in the room. So I think that there are some really exciting things, but, you know, I'm, I tend to be both cynical and pessimistic. So yeah, I'm no, for <laughs> sure, for sure. Because here's the thing. It's so easy for us to rail against technology, but you know what? Like, I like my GPS. Yeah. Like right. before GPS, like the idea of like pulling out a map and or go, even going on the internet to like download something from MapQuest and missing your turn yep. four times. Yep. Like, you know, there are obvious reasons why technology is is great for us. And again, like, see, maybe I'll maybe I'll go on the offensive a little bit here, but it's like, I mean, again, AI is really smart. But it's kind of like an updated version of everything else that teachers have always complained about. Wikipedia, like yeah, hearing yeah. about the devil that Wikipedia is or the devil that, you know, spark notes are. It's just that AI is so damn fast. Yeah, and exactly. You know, it's it, it's you know, I think that is really like one of the biggest, biggest differences, you know, yeah. between that and maybe some things that students would use as aids before, you know. Yeah. And that's where I mean the thing, the thing too that that surprises me is I think chat GPT only sort of like came out into the public sphere, you know, and it sort of got on the radar in like November. Right. Yes. So it's not, it's not even been a year and it's yeah. already accelerating so fast. And that's where education moves at a, at a, you know, turns uh, about as precisely as a battleship. Right. I mean, right. like it, it, Very takes, true. it takes forever. So that's the part that uh, what is going to fall apart and be broken down. And that's where right. going back to the efficiency thing too is, um, I've said this about higher ed. I don't, I would imagine it's probably similar with, with, uh, K through 12, mm-hmm. but you know, the administrators are learning all of the wrong lessons from COVID, right? I mean, because it, it's not about the quality of the education. It's about, you know, uh, spreadsheets and, and making sure that the bottom, bottom line looks good. Um, yeah. which is, you know, it's one of those things that if that is not your concern, like, of course, I don't want universities to go under, but I also want to have authentic, more authentic experiences. You know, one of the things too, like more on the, uh, utopian sort of side is that, uh, so I, you know, I mentioned before that I, that I'm a big soccer player. Uh, mm-hmm. I love, love to play all that kind of stuff. The other thing is that I love to be outdoors. I, I go camping. We go for two weeks in the Adirondacks where you can't even get a cell signal, much less mm-hmm. internet. Um, and I absolutely love it. I love breaking down wood to create a fire. I love setting up camp. I love, you know, getting hot, jumping in the water, cooling down, right? All that stuff that is not on a screen that is not, it's all very embodied. And I'm hoping that one of the things that we can start to do in education is figure out how can we get those embodied experiences um, more into the classroom. So it's not right. passive and sitting and you're working on a computer and you're doing all of those things. I've got a friend who does live action role play LARPing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's where, you know, the, the unpredictability of role playing games, you're, you're virtually doing that, right? You're, you're sort of virtually embodied in another character and virtually exploring. But I, you know, I would really, I, I would love to see a future in which we're doing more, uh, active, you know, genuinely active learning outside, thinking about sensations, um, we have a really large deaf population at RIT too. Mm-hmm. And there's other students who have other um, disabilities or or limitations, and just sort of like bringing all of that into you know merging all of that kind of experience of what it's like to be a human being who has sensor senses and things like that, and and really merging that with the content that we're trying to, to right. get across, right? Rather than this you know very superficial worksheet kind of you know efficiency thing. Um, and I think that that's where too the you know for the people who my my uh, friend Dave Simpkins is the one who does a lot of great work in in LARP at RIT. Uh, And he says, you know, it's a pretty easy step 
to get from somebody who's never played a role-playing game to do a tabletop role-playing game, it's a much larger step to get them to LARP, right? Oh, yeah. To, to embody it is a much different thing. Um, and it's a pretty niche community as well. But, you know, I, I keep thinking um, these people who can come out of their shells during cosplay conventions, right? They can mm-hmm. literally change who they are and they can say, I'm going to role play as somebody who is very, uh, you know, personable and active and outgoing, right? Because that's the character I'm playing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one of the things, too, that there seems the more radically we think about how we can start to think about playful, uh, playful learning, gameful learning, all those kind of things. Um, it may be that we're going to be moving away from screens and, and right. okay, well, you know, paint yourself blue if you want, if that's what it takes. Right. You know well, what look, I mean? This it's- is, uh, yeah. I mean, look, I, this is where I see games as being so valuable in the classroom, you know? Um, because again, don't get me wrong. Like when I think about students that I've had over the years, I'm, of course they learn, you know, of course they remember, I should say things that we did in class, you know, though the numbers are staggeringly low, right? Even if you're an amazing teacher, um, I think kids remember about 10 or 20% of what they actually do in their, in their coursework. And I think it's worse now because of just how inundated they are with the world, you know? Um, but what I do find, right. Is that when I run a game, those are the kids that come back and remember things, you know, Absolutely. Yep. And, and all the skill building that we did. Those are usually sort of the moments that that stand out for students, you know. Yep. But the other kind of hurdle is, look, if I could gamify every class that I teach, it'd be amazing. The problem is education itself has to change because yep. if the APs don't go away, if our fascination with standardized tests don't go away, and yep. then I don't even think it matters anymore. Like if you look at... Don't get me wrong. Again, like there are certain schools out there, whether they're IVs or really, you know, great small public colleges or what, or private colleges, I should say. Yeah. I mean, there are certain characters, characteristics that each of those schools have. But ultimately, let's just be honest. It's just buying into the system, right? Yeah, like exactly. I am going to go to this exactly. particular place, learn just as little as I did in high school, so that I could get my finance job or I could get yeah. my job. Some, you know, so. That's that to me is what I don't get held down or or bothered by AI or changes in education because I, I I feel like for myself I can kind of flow with the times, but the system itself the is system. what yeah that's yeah. what can kind of weigh me down because because even as you were sort of describing like some of those lessons that might not be in as engaging as others it's like all I can think about is the fact that for me I could do things my own way everywhere and probably have it be even more engaging but then there's the weight of the institution exactly you know exactly and if if those gameful and playful uh approaches give you life lessons that you can take with you you know forever uh but they don't help you pass the standardized test i don't think that that is successful i mean it's a successful recipe in some ways but that's not going to get you the success there's been some things in upper administration too in our university where uh people have said uh, I don't want to name names, uh, but you right. know, saying like, oh, well, you know, the classes aren't even the most important thing. It's the experience of being on campus and sort of the out of class. And it's like, OK, wait, 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 wait. let's put a hard <laughs> stop on that. Right. Right. Because it's like we can we can do both of those things. Right. Um, and we need to think about. But this is where, you know, as you were talking to uh, about the about using games in, in the classroom. So the way that this class worked for me this last spring is we had six sessions and it was very much like act one. You know, the first one was act one where they were going to come up with a problem or they would tell me what they kind of wanted their session or their campaign to be about. 
And then it would ratchet up the tension. And there were two things that, again, I've got these things where it doesn't matter uh, how long I've been doing this. There's always, you know, I probably forget 80% of each class too. <laughs> but there were two two times in which, you know, building up to these climactic fifth, you know, the fifth uh, session or whatever. And it was all set up for these characters. And, uh, you know, out of 20 or whatever, they all had some sort of like climax to have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And two of them failed their roles, right? Even when they the odds were really, really good that they were going to pass and both of them failed. And in one of them, they failed. It was like the Tales from the Loop one where this was the heroic moment where this kid was going to be able to fix this robot, you know, bring back their friend, uh, failed, right? And it's like, mm-hmm. okay. And then the other one was a situation in which the, the this group had sort of like set up a, this disaster to sort of happen. And then they were sort of like, oh, wow, there are people we know who were going to be affected by this. Mm-hmm. He was trying to get his mom out mm-hmm. uh, because she showed up and he failed, right? right? And those were the stories where at the end of the day, like everybody, like the room went so quiet. And I'm like, see, this is a good story because we were all expecting. So what does that character do Saturday morning when they've just failed on Friday night? Right. And mm-hmm. that's where the end of this story for the, the character was doing the robot was like, you know, she she opened up the student, opened up the last scene with this kid back in the woodshed, back at the Like, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. yes, I did not resurrect the robot. But now this makes me even twice as you know interested in learning how to do this right. Right. right? Well, it's the so, failures we remember, right? Exactly, I don't know about exactly. you, but like the the when when I'm with my my game group and we're talking about like you know the vampire or the masquerade games that we've been running for like twenty years, you know, it's not it's usually not like the happy successful things that we remember. Yeah. It's like the yeah. utter total catastrophic failures and what the result. Yep. Was, you know? Yeah, exactly. So. That's right. That first that that first uh time that I did it too with the post-apocalyptic uh Milwaukee, there was one group in which uh they were gonna go in, plant a bomb, and then get out uh and blow up this police station, and that was gonna be their big, you know, like this sort of fascist police station or whatever. And that was gonna be the big thing. And it was very much a situation in which the plan was for them to get in and get out. Mm-hmm. And there was one character who's like, I'm not going to be able to get out of here. So then he turns around, you know, and like launches himself into the into the fray or whatever, you know, and like to create him enough of a diversion. And he rolled like a critical success, <laughs> stood up, knocked his chair over. It was like screaming. Yeah. You know, and then that, that was the whole thing is like you could write a story in which they, you know, the character makes the noble sacrifice. Um, and it would seem totally lame and like, oh, I could see this coming from a million miles away. But that actually genuinely wasn't the plan in this case. And that's what it took, right? And right. it's like, okay, well, that was in a moment in which, you know, for me as a storyteller too, and I, you know, I'm a fiction writer, you know, and I do all this, I, I'm very interested in sort of like story structure or whatever. It's like, I just want to set it up for them to be able to create those moments, however, mm-hmm. uh, and then to see how that moment was sort of set up, right? I, I put you on a, 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 a place in which, you know, the trajectory is sort of there and you can take it in whatever way, you know, and again, it would be really interesting to go back. That's now 12 years ago, right? right. Uh, it would go, it'd be really interesting to go back and ask those students, what do you remember? Um, not just the moment, but like, what do you remember about the, the you know, like the concepts from the class about storytelling mm-hmm. and things like that? And that's, we just don't do enough of those longevity yeah. studies, right? Like we talk yeah. about what jobs do people get? How much money did they make? You know, all that kind of stuff. But we never ask, did you, do you remember reading that book where you had that epiphany at 2 a.m.? We never ask mm-hmm. those questions. Yeah, and that sure. absolutely has value, but we just do a really terrible job of, yeah. of tracking that. 
you know, they, but again, back to games though. Um, I love the debrief. You know, I know that you were, you were saying both here and offline that, you know, it could be hard sometimes to find those moments, but I don't know, for me personally, I always find those to be the most rewarding because that's really where students get a chance. I mean, obviously it's not the same thing as what you're talking about, which is like, you know, being a decade later, but getting a chance to talk through what their characters have done and how their characters have impacted others. And even like being able to point out on some level, like, well, you designed a character, but you're also the one that designed it and you're the one playing it. So what were you thinking in that moment? You know, what were you thinking and what was your character thinking? You know, because I I find it can be a really games can be a really useful, almost like psychological tool, like a way to like learn more about yourself. Because ultimately, right, like I said, you're the one unless you're kind of using your card system, like where, you know, which I part of the reason why I like it is um, the fact that you are creating these limitations and you are sort of dictating on some level what the parameters are. So you have to build a character based on those things to exist yeah. in that particular world. So, yeah, um, that's, that's, you know, the, the thing too, that this is where I, I have gone more and more towards uh, tabletop and analog role-playing games and, and further and further away from digital games because of that flexibility where it's like, you know, I love Skyrim. I love Fallout. I'm a total sort of Bethesda uh, freak. And there's a point in those games in which you reach, and I think about it every time I'm playing it, you reach like a competency threshold in which really you're not going to die anymore, Mm -hmm. right? And then you're really not even going to be in danger anymore because you're so sort of overpowered and you've got all the best sort of, you know, stats or whatever. Um, In those games, the trajectory is pretty much you from going from being a prisoner and a nobody to then, you know, in the the Elder Scrolls series, to then like being the most powerful person in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of video games are about that linear progression you are level. You are literally leveling up, right? You're getting stronger and better. Um, and I think that there's that mentality that that's the way life works, right? I mm-hmm. mean, like you go to school, you go to first grade, you go to third grade, you know, you get your degree and all those kind of things. And that's not at all the way the world works, right? It's full of stepping back. And I think that that's where uh, role playing games, particularly, allow for those moments where it's like your character is going to fail. And I always say, too, like, you know, one of the things that, that I learned as a fiction writer is is killing a character is the kindest thing you can do, right? Mm-hmm. Like, having them live with failure is way harder than having them having them die, right? So right. that's the kind of thing where there's always, you know, I, I talk about the next morning or you can jump forward. Well, like, where is this person going to be in a month or whatever? Because that's the way that we, you know, we apply for a grant. We apply to get into a program. We apply and we don't always get in, right? Mm-hmm. And you don't you, you don't die. You, you know what I mean? Like you got to figure out, okay, what am I going to do now for a year before I can reapply or whatever, right? And that's yeah. where, again, our life stories are much more sort of intricate and complex than a lot of the sort of game stories that we tell. And that's where uh, I really think that there's power at the, at the table to be able to sort of remix and reuse and, you know, go back and rewind and break the rules or house rule stuff that digital games don't allow you to do as yeah. much. Although, I mean, I would say too that there's games like Dark Souls and things like that that are completely built around failure um, right. that, that could be interesting to sort of look at for for other purposes. But that's where I'm always trying to get uh, sort of a sense of realism as opposed to sort of like you're all superhero, you know, you're all super accomplished and whatever. It's like, I like, I like those those moments like talking about the Bethesda games where you're really struggling in the beginning yeah. um, and you can get into big trouble. I, I love yeah. those. I love those moments. Well, I, everything you're describing, it's the same reason why I love the world of darkness. Right. Um, and again, by the way, because sometimes I know I, I am guilty of this. So if you are listening to this and you don't know what the world of darkness is, it's one of my favorite um 
I don't even, again, like worlds, I guess you could say platforms, you know, gaming genres within role playing where um, White Wolf kind of came up with it years and years and years ago. And essentially it's, you know, a world that's kind of like a caricature of our own world. And you've got vampires and werewolves and ghosts existing all within it, while at the same time, the real world is sort of carrying on. And what I really like about that, and Trent, I know that you you back in the day were really into uh, vampire and stuff like yep. that, and even probably are now, right? Yeah. 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 So I mean, what's great about that is, at you know, what's great about it, but also can, what could be really frustrating for players is the fact that there's always somebody above you. There's yep. always somebody above you telling you telling um, you what to do, or there's always somebody sort of more powerful. So no matter how much your character can grow there's always something out there that's sort of you know nasty and evil which um not necessarily saying that the world is like that but um it it, you know (laughs) it it is is, (laughs) i mean it kind of is right but the games definitely give you an opportunity to make mistakes and fail which again i think is really like one of the most important lessons that games can teach us right yeah and that's where the the games that i'm really into right now free league has a bunch of games that use their mutant year zero engine and vasen which is v-a-e-s-e-n um is a game where it's a 19th century scandinavia uh in which sort of the forces of industrialization are colliding with all of these folk creatures and fairy creatures you know and and occult things and you are a group of uh detectives or sort of you're, you're members of a society that have to try and sort of mediate between these creepy crawly monstrous things and then human society because most of human society doesn't know any of this is going on mm-hmm. um but the the engine, so both the the um, I really like Blades in the Dark as a system as well, and then um, Vazen and the Mutant Year Zero engine is you're failing a lot, uh, and you got to figure out how to. So at number one, a success is rarer, so then it is a, a much bigger deal. And then the question is, if you fail, how do you keep the story moving forward? Right. So you have a dice pool of, of d sixes. And only a six-sided die, if you roll a six, that's the only success, right? So you could oh, roll wow. five fives, and that's nothing. You could roll four ones and a six, and that's a better result, right? So it's, it gets to be very interesting. They're very narrative-focused games. And the thing that I particularly love about Vazen is that the Vazen don't have any hit points. Mm-hmm. You can't, like, you got to figure out how to get rid of it. you got to figure out how to, you know, protect people or whatever. But you can't really kill it because they are infinitely more powerful and clever than you. Like, sometimes you can banish it or, you know, whatever. Right. But for the most part... Um, it's da- it's really, really dangerous and it's more about solving the mystery and, you know, collecting information and character interactions. And I just love them. And, and the same thing with blades yeah. in the dark is, uh, they, you, if you roll a four or a five, you get a qualified success, uh, and you have your dice pool and then a six is a complete success. So it's always about you're you're always rolling just a few dice and you're generally succeeding, but all of your successes have consequences or the vast majority of your successes have some sort of drawback or negative negative yeah. aspect to them. It sounds and like a cool game. Really cool. Yeah, they're game. both they're both really sort of narrative forward. Um and they they do a good job. The mechanics match the settings very, very well. Yeah. Well, I don't know. For me, um, it might just be my particular group that I that I game with, but our mantra is always if we're folk we're if we're like too focused on our characters and all we care about um are our stats and rolling lots of dice and things along those lines, which I guess for some people that's why they play something like yep. D&D. To yep. us, it's like it's a failure of a game. Because yeah, yeah. for us, it's the narrative. I mean, it's the story. Yeah. That's that's the most important. So yeah, absolutely. And that's I've played in a, in different groups too, where uh people are really, really it's more about like a, a 
I played D and D before where it's more like a military kind of game in which mm-hmm. they're trying to, you know, use flanking rules and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, I don't know how to play that way at all. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and just really, I, I am very much like the rules are there for guidance. Uh, you know what I mean? And like, I, I hate rules lawyering and, and, uh, sort of like the adjudication of like, what does this rule mean and whatever, it just mm-hmm. grinds everything to a, to a halt. Um, so yeah, I'm very much more the, the storytelling and the experience of, you know, that that's one of the things too, that I find sort of interesting with, uh, role-playing in the classroom is that oftentimes students want to protect their characters, mm-hmm. um, too much. Uh, and it's like, look, uh, you know, no one wants to hear a story about someone who lives in their parents' basement and <laughs> outside, right? I mean, this is the time right. to really kind of experiment and and get out there. But it's also good to sort of keep in mind that what is easy for someone might be very challenging for someone else, right? But just giving them that uh, sort of on-ramp and invitation to try, and you're not going to be assessed on how you play. You know what I mean? Like, you're, it's there are other things that, you know, when assessment has to come, because that's something that the institution requires, um, it'll be humane and it'll be a conversation, mm-hmm. right? You know, and it's like, but it's really about the experience getting, you know, like how many times do you think somebody takes a math class and the professor is like, it's about the experience of yeah. math, right? right? You know what right. I mean? It just, and I feel very fortunate that I work in a field where that it allows me to do that, right? Yeah. And not everybody has that, uh, ability, but I want to make sure too, that the things that I'm doing in my classroom are things that are going to be once in a lifetime kind of experiences. They're paying a lot of tuition. So I want to give them something really special, not something that they could go down to Barnes and Noble and take a six week workshop. Like there's mm-hmm. all of those opportunities out there. But yeah. This is the only time you're going to be in a room with 19 other, you know, my classes are 20 students for these creative writing classes. Only time you're going to have 19 other students and somebody in the front of the room giving you the rules about what you can and can't do. Um, that is not something that is going to happen to you for the most part outside of uh, outside of these classes, which is, again, it's motivating for me. And then I think once they buy in, it's motivating um, for them. And I think going back to the question that you asked a while ago, whether it's these students um, or whether this is going to be a permanent change. I always find that those first couple weeks of class are so important in terms mm-hmm. of dictating the tone. And I think I need to do a different job. I think the students that are coming through now need to be assured or something in a different way that I know what I'm doing and they need to trust me because mm-hmm. I think a lot, you know, I work at a STEM institution as well. And I think that a lot of their professors that are in physics or, you know, engineering or whatever, um, talk about grants, you know what I mean? And it's mm-hmm. like, they're the, re- they're the real professors the professors over in the liberal arts do that kind of fluffy, you know, whatever. And it's like, look, I, I'm just as hardcore as any of those people. I just what do you think they're stuff. afraid of? Like, in, so, so a kid kind of walks into your class, right? So besides the whole gaming thing, right? Yep. So what, is, what, what do you feel like in terms of trust? Like you need to kind of convince them that this class is not bullshit, like that it's, that it's yep. real. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, that, I think they're mostly worried about how they're going to be assessed, right? Like, right. I, I don't want to do it wrong. And I think, and I don't know, it feels like there must have been experiences in the past in which an instructor says, or a teacher says, I want you to try this and experiment and be okay to fail. And then they get yeah. punished for doing that. Right? Yeah, it's so heartbreaking, though, Trent. Yeah. Like, just, yeah. again, we, I feel like we have to stop for a second. So it's like, <laughs> the, that idea, like being 20 years old, and taking a class on role play games and creative writing and worrying about how you're going to be graded is crazy to me that that is something that they're thinking about. But you know what? I say a lot of the same stuff too, because frankly, so 
where I work, right, I teach mainstream classes that kids have to take. But then the courses that I gamify tend to be the electives. And I kind yeah. of have to say some of the similar similar stuff like yeah. where I have to say to them, look, you will have to actively try harder to not do well here than to do yeah. to do a good job. Like it's yeah. literally harder to fail than it is to get a pretty solid grade. So I, I guess like I'm in sort of the same boat, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's where, you know, for the stuff too, for the good constructionist uh, learning theory stuff is if you, if you do it, you can't help but learn. And the only mm-hmm. way that you can not learn is by not doing the work. Right. Um, and that's where if the, if the resistance or the fear is that you're going to do it wrong, then I need to do more to assure them. And this is where too, I think it's, it's sort of funny because some of the students come in and they're like, okay, well, you know, I see this guy with a white beard and he's t- talking about role playing. What does he know? And it's mm-hmm. like, well, I got, I got dice that are older than you. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I've, been, I've been doing this for a while. And like, yeah. you know, it's one of those things that I've got a, a fairly established professional reputation and I've been doing, you know what I mean? I'm like, yes. I get, Yes, <laughs> but, but I think like even starting off with the semester of explaining, like I've been, what I tend to do is use the last, the last session to do a course sort of like overview, tell me, and then I'll tell them what the, the educational theories behind and like the course design. And mm-hmm. I may start leading with that, right? Like right. just saying, Hey, look, this is something, cause I've got, you know, obviously I'm very informal in the classroom. I mm-hmm. swear I make jokes, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Whatever. And I think that there is a, there, there's a, now I've noticed more of a suspicion of that, right? I mean, like mm-hmm. I, I may have to come come forward with the, and I don't wear suits or anything like that, you know what I mean? Right. But I may have to say in the very beginning, like, hey, look, um, this stuff is is verifiable. I've been publishing on this. I am somebody who does this all the time. Here's some of the things that if you want, you can read. But like, I, that's not what we're going to be. You know, like you don't need to worry about that. Just know that it's there and trust in the process and trust in me. Because I've had right. students too say like, have you ever published anything? And I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm a creative writing professor. Who did <laughs> pull me off the street? Right. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, of course. Like it's a it's a profession. You know, it's right. something that you need to, it's quite hard to get a job, you know. Right. So um, but then again, you got to remember they're 20 years old in a lot of instances, right? You know, and don't, yeah. don't sort of understand how how things uh sort of work. But right, right, right. That is pretty funny. So let me ask something, Trent. So obviously, I feel like I could we could probably talk about an endless amount of topics yeah. just based on what we've covered today. So in a lot of ways, today is kind of an introduction to, to some of the th- things that you do. So what I'm thinking is like in terms of a wrap up, what are, what are you doing now? Like what's on the sort of horizon for you when it comes to game-based learning or things you're doing at RIT or, you know, other kind of avenues you're going down when it comes to games, like what's going on with you, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, what, going back to one of the things that I that I'd said uh, earlier, I want to try. I, I'm really interested in trying to develop more um, sort of localized uh, games, right? So it's like the steampunk Rochester. I want to maybe get back to that or do something else where we're actually getting the students out into the city, right? Like where mm-hmm. they're actually learning about because a lot of them are from the Rochester area and some of them aren't. But it, it's an interesting area, and like, what area doesn't have an interesting history? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And like, getting getting students out of the classroom and thinking about what is a virtual world or a fictional world that we can put on top of our actual spaces, right? To just make your daily walk around town, uh, you know, things are popping off in your head, like, oh, that's a location and that's a per, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like those kind of things. So again, that idea of the embodied learning and getting them out of the classroom and away from screens for a little bit and having this stuff, whether they whether they like it or not, having it sort of like fire off in their in their heads, right? That's, yeah. that's the best kind of stuff. 
It's like uh, geocaching yeah, in exactly. a way more fun way. Right, right, yeah. exactly. Uh, so there's that. And then the other thing that I'm, I'm turning more and more towards, too, I teach a class that's a transmedia story worlds class, which talks about uh, it's Star Wars is the, the the focus of that class. But we talk about how do films tell stories, how do TV tell stories, how do comics tell stories. And then there's a unit at the end that where we play the role-playing game, right? And mm-hmm. be able to say, okay, well, there are these massive franchises that are multi-authored and they're branching out across all these timelines. So, and there's a commercial aspect to that, right? There's a reason why George R. R. Martin, right? Everyone's waiting on his next book because it's just one dude. Whereas right. Star Wars has multiple authors working across multiple forms of media. So the money is always sort of coming in. And there's a really important aspect with the cosplay and the role play and the LARP where you can take, you're not a, you're not a passive consumer, Right. You can be. And that's where a lot of the cosplay stuff came from. Like, I think the steampunk uh, sort of era was like, well, look, um, you don't need to be a Victorian, uh, you know, aristocrat to be into steampunk. You can Mm -hmm. be Asian. You can be black. You can you know what I mean? Like all these people who've been written out. And it's the cosplayers who say, I want to see these people who look like me. And I think there's a big part of this with those large scale story worlds, whether it's Marvel or or you know, whatever, whatever worlds that we're in, I think Mm -hmm. it's a really critical skill to teach students how to be critical consumers of these different forms of media. And then also how to participate, um, in it where you're not just a passive recipient, you can make your own stories. Uh, and you know, there's all this backlash anytime, you know, Bud Light gives a a trans, uh, Instagrammer a free case of, and then there's all this outrage, right? Oh, I know. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I do think it's important though, for people to be able to find their own voice. And this is where, especially you're working with even younger students than me, but they're still developing in their 20s, right, as, as undergrads. And being able to say, okay, what are the things that you're being bombarded all the time with all of these messages? How do you find out who you are in all of that, right? Sure. And, and really um, bringing that kind of stuff. And I think role-playing and, and uh, you know, getting people out into physical environments, it gets it out of sort of the theoretical and into the the material, right? Like you're physically yeah. moving around the city. You're physically, you know, getting hot as you're walking, all those kind of things. Um, I think that that's where, for me, those kinds of aspects. And then we do this in the role, role play as well. Like um, I'm going to be doing some stuff in, in the fall in which – we're going to be do it's going to be uh twilight 2000 i don't know if you're familiar with that game oh, tw- uh, twilight the vampires twilight no 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 twilight, oh, okay. twilight 2000 is a, is oh a no game. i am not <laughs> it's a it's a reboot it's a reboot of a game that free league is now making where it, the concept is it's world war three that has just ended and you are a troop of either you know they're a swedish company so they, mm. it's either swedish or you're from the united states uh and you basically get the last message from high command being like war's over we lost good luck Right. And like you're in the middle <laughs> of the Soviet Union, you're in the middle of Poland or whatever. Right. Um, and then another game is going to be a blend of that and then a, a game called Dragon Bane, which is uh, mm-hmm. a Swedish sort of D&D thing. But the idea is going to be that you're outside. I've created this fictional world. that's New York State or whatever. Changed all the names or whatever. Um, but you you were about ready to lay siege to the city. But now the war is over. What are you going to go do? And it's all right. going to be random encounters, but it's going to be like weather changing and you know rough terrain and getting lost and all those kind mm-hmm. of things where i'm not planning any of it it's just going to be random encounters but right. that whole thing is just trying to get in the head of somebody who the theme of uh, twilight 2000 is you just want to get home right. right but then the question is where how do you even do that when you know you're far far away from home but that's kind of the mindset that uh i'm going to be starting with that with sounds that fun idea. yeah with yeah, the idea of like cool. the the physical like and there is no like you 
who knows how far you'll get, yeah. right? It, it, it's like, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. There's a nice little parallel too. Well, it's not nice if you're one of these individuals, but it's like, you know, what's going to happen like when the world doesn't need truck drivers anymore because of AI or for yep. example, like back in the day when like IBM like left Kipsy, New York. And it's like, it's kind of like that. Like, oh, you were doing this thing for a really long time, doing well yep. at it. Guess what? It doesn't exist anymore. It, yeah, it's that's right. I mean, we've got, we've got Kodak here as the biggest uh, reminder, right? Of yeah. they did not, they, they decided to double down on um uh physical physical film rather than digital yeah and now 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 kodak no longer exists so. yeah so here's the thing i'm gonna bring up a point even though i i we were sort of wrapping up so i don't even know if i should say this okay but yeah i can't help myself part all right two, so since do. yeah so this will be part two so maybe we can touch on this and next time we next time we chat we can discuss so um mandalorian season three uh-huh did you hate it as much as i did um, I didn't hate it, but I have lots of questions about it, right? Like, it's <laughs> you're so professional. Things. Yeah, it's yeah, a very yeah. professional well, no, I, I, I'll tell you, I hated the Obi-Wan. Uh, I hated the Obi-Wan series. See, but... that I, at least for me, like, it, the nostalgia part made that okay. All right, yeah. See, that, and that's where, too, I mean, like, these yeah. are the kind of things that we talk about in, uh, in the class. Like, one of the things that I find very gratifying is that when Rogue One first came out, students, yeah. like, were divided 50-50, yeah. liked it or, or, or hated it. And now they all said it was their favorite Star Wars movie. And I yeah. love Rogue One and I love Andor. So I feel like, yeah. okay, maybe the kids are all right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, on that note, so next time you come on, we can uh, we can discuss some of this um, Star Wars. Because I know that you're a big fan of that. There's plenty of yep. other things that we can discuss. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so Trent, thanks so much for for coming on. And hopefully um, hopefully over the summer, summer, we can kind of run into each other. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I know that um, Dr. Slaught is not doing his conference uh yeah. that was that was something that i was really looking forward to so hopefully something uh comes up along the way you yeah, know i think i think so we've got a lot of people who are who are doing this kind of work and there is no single event yeah um that that allows us to sort of pull together uh that that there used to be um and i think that there's still a lot of interest in trying to find that even if it's just regional right you know yeah, I mean? it's one sure. of those things that uh uh it would just be great to hear about what other people are doing and that's where um, when I was at RPI the other weekend, it's like, I've not been to going to conferences because they slashed yeah. our travel budget. And it is just so great to be in person and yeah. talking informally and playing games. And you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Just talk, talking shop while you play games. It's well, just with any luck, thing. we can, with any luck, we could get you out to, uh, Nisaga in yeah, St. Louis. Great. That would be, be amazing. Great. You know? Yeah. I gotta see. That's where we gotta see if we got the travel funding or not. Yeah. That's where they gotta see within enrollments and all that kind of stuff. But, yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah. All right, Trent. Well, be good. And awesome. um, it was awesome having you on. Yeah, time absolutely flew. So easy to, Indeed. to, to talk no, about. No, I know. It's been a while. So, all yeah, right, man. Great. All right. Have a good one. Thanks. Bye, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to today's 20 sided gamified podcast. I hope you got as much out of the conversation as I did. If you're interested in learning more about the organizations I work with, please visit www.nextgengaming.org and www.nasaga.org My Instagram handle is hmgs underscore nextgen underscore inc Until next time, be well, get some gaming in, and roll some 20s. Thank you so much.